Hi, everyone. Israel is an apartheid state. How about that? I think that's a good place to start. Let's, let's consider this the run. Before we get started, I wanted to share some resources that you can use to support the Palestinians as they are unlawfully and inhumanely attacked by the Israeli government. The first one is medical aid for Palestinians. Um, you can make monthly donations there or one-time donations. They're really cool because they're involved on a ground floor level. Um, so your aid will go directly to Palestinians that are in need of help in Gaza and elsewhere. There's also the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund, which is really great because it's a the main nonprofit providing free surgery and urgent aid to sick and injured children specifically. And if you've been following this, you know that a lot of children have been injured by the bombings um, that are happening in Gaza right now that are being perpetuated by the Israeli military. Um, and it's a really terrible thing. So if you aren't aware of that, you should look into it and you should support causes like these. Um, there's also the Palestine Appeal uh, 2021, which is raising money uh, for the families that have lost their homes um, in the, the bombings that have been occurring. Um, and then finally, there are a couple of other things you can do. You can tell Congress to support H.R. 2590, which is the Palestinian Children and Families Act. That's a very important law because it's it's um, telling Congress that the U.S. does not want to pay tax dollars to fund the Israeli government as they carry out their human rights violations. As of right now, your tax dollars are paying for the bombs that the Israelis are dropping on the Palestinian people, including the children that I mentioned. I don't want that to continue to happen. I don't think any of us should. And so you can tell Congress to support HR 2590 to ensure that that stops happening. And finally, you can sign a petition to save Sheikh Jarrah, which is a neighborhood that is um, undergoing the primary uh, bombings right now. There is a movement in Israel to evict the Palestinian people from that neighborhood. This petition is, is advocating against that in order to help those people keep their homes and keep from being um, attacked any longer. So that's a very important petition to sign as well. We'll have all of those things in the show notes and you'll be able to support them. Uh, thank you so much. And we will begin our silly show now. Thanks. Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org where you can get tickets, merch, and a whole bunch of other cool ways to support the Trilon in this weird, weird time. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. Now, I've seen everything, but what do I care? And you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison, and my car broke down. I'm actually still in Belgium. Uh, you can find me in Belgium and on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Cops are cops the world over. I'm Harry Mackin. You can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. 
Uh, my name is Aaron. I don't have a quote from this film because most of it is in French, but you just know that like emotionally and mentally, uh, I am pretty much the same as uh, Maria's dog. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease, although I am uh, taking a Twitter break. The living or dead version of Maria's dog? Both, actually. The both in hmm. separate the, ways. The quantum oh, uh, Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's Maria's dog. Excellent. Thank also, you. For... Do we, do we want to let our viewers pause and, and take a break while they fill out their Try Love bingo cards? Uh, Aaron falsely claiming he's on a break from Twitter. So you can just mark that I down if you have it. Twitter and we can two weeks. Um, I'm a new man. I don't even, I don't okay. even touch that stuff anymore. Okay. You sound like the same old Aaron to me. Uh, today we are talking. We are continuing our series on Jacques Tati films with Traffic. It is going to be playing at the Trilon Cinema this coming weekend. Get your tickets at trilon.org. 1971 film and the last appearance, I believe, of Monsieur Hulot as a character. Uh, Aaron, tell us what this movie is about. Yes, Traffic, uh, 1971, Jacques Tati film. Uh, it was Tati's uh, fifth film overall. It was, uh, yes, the, the fourth film of his... Uh, not counting short films uh, to involve the character of Monsieur Hulot, who we've also seen uh, in Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, as well as uh, my uncle. Uh, in this film, uh, the character of Hulot works as an auto designer for a French automotive company uh, who attempts to take the company's new camper car, kind of showy with, with all these bells and whistles and features, uh, to an automotive show, uh, automotive show uh, in Amsterdam. Uh, but runs into various different problems and roadblocks along the way. Uh, also in this film, kind of notably, uh, Maria Kim Kimberly as Maria, uh, the kind of PR uh, woman who kind of uh, assists Hulot, and uh, Marcel Frival as uh, Marcel, the truck driver who uh, drives along with Hulot. Uh, Traffic was the next full-length film directed by Tati after the critical uh, but not commercial success of his 1967 film Playtime. Uh, compared to Playtime, Traffic is, is often seen uh, as kind of a minor work of uh, Tati's, uh, with some critics arguing that the film uh, maybe suffers from a, a slightly kind of meandering uh, and unfocused nature, especially in comparison to Playtime, which is kind of a, a tightly, finely tuned uh, work. Um, Tati disliked the idea of Monsieur Hulot as a recurring starring character in his films, uh, but he did bring the character back to the foreground for traffic after the uh, commercial disappointment of Playtime uh, brought him close to bankruptcy. Although Playtime did involve the character of Hulot, the character is in a much more limited role in that film, uh, which maybe partially explains the uh, the lack of commercial success. Um, and as Traffic was the last film that he made, uh, as Jason mentioned, starring the character of Hulot, this film can kind of be seen uh, as a send-off of sorts for the character. That's what I got, Jason. And that's what you had, Aaron. Thank you so much for your wonderful, wonderful summary. Uh, I will give my quick thoughts off the top. Um, I found myself while watching this movie this morning, sort of backing away from my own criticisms of it as I was watching. Um, I feel like it's very easy to be very prescriptive uh, when watching comedies, especially older comedies about whether or not, you know, what you see is funny, quote unquote. Uh, and that was my knee jerk reaction throughout was, uh, you know, especially after the explicitly comedic comedies we watched, um, Mon Oncle and uh, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday. Um, those are very like straightforward, funny, improv, well, improvisational feeling, but very tightly crafted comedies. Uh, and this, after a run of those, feels like Harry, like Aaron was saying, sorry, um, very, it can feel plotting. It can feel a little bit pointless. Uh, but I think that it has a lot of insight to share about the relationship humans have to vehicles and more generally to technology and means of tra transportation. Uh, and especially as owners of that technology, I'm not smart enough to really elucidate why, but I feel like that's one of the things that must have been pointing toward, of course, with Tati being somewhat of a lampooner of these general, um, you know, 
uh, modernism and technical technological advancements and how they're used uh, by modern society. Um, I think that uh, I kind of like how everyone's obsessed with the moon landing. We were talking before we started uh, recording about there, how there are like two key scenes in which um, the moon landing is, is like a big part and a very a point of focus. I think that probably ties into the uh, statements it's making about that relationship to technology and like our place in the world and how we move through it with those. Uh, I think it's also, I mean, personally, I think it's also undeniably less funny than the either Tati film we've already covered so far, in my opinion. Um, quick other notes. I think it's bizarre to see Hulo in charge of anything at all, but that presumably becomes like, like Aaron was saying, because uh, Hulo was sort of a last minute uh, producer's requirement, supposedly to this movie to get it funded was you must put Hulo in this movie because he's an established character. Uh, but it becomes very, very important in the customs scene. Uh, the fact that he sort of le- led the charge and designed this car. I thought he was like breaking his way in accidentally into the design room in that first scene. It turns out he's not, he's actually employed by this company. Um, we did not get enough of the foppish PR guy who literally prances away from the plot after the first scene. Uh, big fan of him, and he was not in it for long enough. I also miss the guy from Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, who was always like, I saw the whole thing. He tripped on the cable and he fell in the river. Like after every gag that happens, there's just a guy who came in and explained to the unlucky foil like what happened in that bit. And that guy's disappearing. He's not he's not in this movie. Um, I think the priest in the pileup is very funny. I think that sometimes because the cars get to talk in a weird like pseudo dialect uh, and like, I don't know, just they, they make like grunting and ow noises sometimes is a very like bizarre stylistic touch that is I think is very funny, made me laugh every time. And the only time that I actually laughed out loud was the gas canister scene when they are broken down on the highway and they have to go get gas and he meets somebody else who's also looking to get gas. Um, that's a lot. So I will uh, put a cork in it. And I am actually um, I'm signaling to the left with my left hand to indicate that Cody has the right of way uh, and that he may proceed with his summary and uh, overall thoughts. Wow, very good. I have not used the hand signals in quite a while, but um, those are very important to remember. So I, yeah, I, I connect with you. I see that. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm going to take my turn in this intersection. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed my viewing of this movie, although I'm bummed uh, technology prevented us from doing a successful group watch of it together, but say la vie. Um, and yeah, a lot of what I'm about to say is also um, maybe interestingly uh, painted by the context of Hulo being you know, integrated into the movie sort of later, not necessarily from the get-go. I, I think that's fascinating. Um, but yeah, even though this is chronologically the last film in the Trilons Tati series that was released, um, and it's also the last appearance of the Hulo character, Traffic feels like uh, an appropriate solid watch once you have two or three of his other films under your belt. Um, Monocle and Holiday don't necessarily give like a formal introduction to Hulu, but it always feels like there's a sort of like clumsy lead in or uh, like a slapstick sequence that establishes his presence. Uh, we don't really get that in Traffic other than him, uh, as Jason said, kind of entering the office. Uh, and, you know, and, and this movie, it, it feels like a almost like a conventional work of narrative fiction when you compare it to the other films of Tati's that we've covered up to now. Um, but yeah, it kind of brings Hulo in and treats him just like a, a normal uh, working class dude alongside everyone else, which was kind of interesting. Um, and that's not by any means a bad flavor. And in fact, I think it benefits the angle this movie takes in showcasing the quirks of something like automobiles and moving ever so slightly away from highlighting the quirks of people specifically within, you know, like architectural uh, constructs or, or people on holiday or something. Uh, the gags still work in similar ways, I think, uh, because 
through like uh, framing and sound mixing these vehicles and factories and auto shows become kind of anthropomorphized. Uh, the factory is filled with people, the highways all have steady traffic, parking lots are loaded with cars. Um, I don't know if I'd say they all develop their own personalities necessarily, because a lot of them are touch and go environments, but you know, they each, you know, they, they're, they're kind of their own ecosystem and sort of like the bizarre surroundings in Mononcle, we see Hulo trying to make sense of these things uh, before our eyes and that sort of role of power he has. Um, yeah, to me, I, I don't know. There were some stretches in, in Trafic that were a little too dry for me. The first half or so felt like a more well-developed environment um, for whatever gags or like light commentary uh, Tati might have wanted to be doing compared to, you know, the latter half of the film. The gags were always honest, but maybe less like dynamic, I guess I'll say. Uh, I, I think the focus on automotive industry, like procedures and hierarchies is uh, like a, a nice, cool next, I guess, final step for this character since it was the character's last movie. Um, I think montages of people in society doing mundane things like yawning and picking noses is very funny. Uh, I think juxtaposing televised sequences of successful space missions alongside a piece of shit truck that keeps breaking down on like the way from one destination to another is very, very good. And uh, I'd love to have seen even more of all of those things, I think, but this was still genuinely fun. I predictably had a great time with it just as I uh, predictably have a great time hearing what Harry thinks about movies. So let's maybe drive over to his show and see what he has on display for us. Harry. Wow. Thanks Cody. That was my exit. So it was a Perfect time. Um, yeah, I, I really like a lot of what both of you said. I really actually um, am glad we watched this in the order we did, like Jason alluded to. This felt to me like, uh, this is a weird comparison, right? But it's like the Spider-Man 3 of Hulu movies in that like at this point, he's such an established character that he himself is an in-joke. Like the, the core conceit of this movie is funny because it's funny to think of Hulu as being a designer and being somebody who's in charge of things. That's a joke that wouldn't land if this had been the first one we had seen right so like it's interesting to to see tati play with the establishment of hulo as a character here um it's also really interesting to see hulo in a working context seeing as how um we've only seen him in sort of like uh first leisurely and then sort of familial contexts um although he, he was a worker at that other auto factory um it's it's a really um appropriate context for a Tati movie. I think this sort of logistical nightmare of, of coordinating this big um, event show. I, I was very empathetic to that as um, someone who has like done event coordination before. I think any, anybody who's ever had to do that professionally or not professionally knows that it's always a clusterfuck. And so it was like super fun to watch Tati play with the inherent ridiculousness and absurdity of um, logistical planning and maintenance in that way. Um, it like totally makes sense. He's such a master of figuring out what his, um, his template should be applied to, you know, like he did so masterfully with um, Monsieur Hulot's holiday. I could totally tell that he was doing the same thing here and thinking through that process um, and applying it specifically to the automotive industry, which is so mechanized and so automated and so, um, uh, it's such a factory process that makes so much sense to see the juxtaposition between people and machines and systems, the way that he's so good at, um, illustrating. Um, I think that making this a road trip movie made a lot of sense too. I really, really enjoyed that aspect of it because it gave, um, Tati an even better 
chance than usual to to demonstrate his view and his sort of like I love the way that he uses the camera to film his subject matter and the way that his subject matter shifts um about halfway through this it occurred to me that like this is like what god must see us as right it's like the the absurdity and the the uniformity of absurdity and the universality of of absurdity of this experience and how everyone's picking their nose everybody's yawning everything is constantly breaking down it's a miracle that anybody can drive from point a to point b because of all of the ways we get in each other's ways and get in our own ways, right? Uh, the way that that all of these logistical nightmares on a micro and macro level are a total dysfunctional disaster. And those disasters are interlinking and intersecting in order to create problems for each other, right? Where we're seeing narratives collide literally the way that they are on the highway, right? Um, that's what the, the sort of symbolic traffic and... Um, uh, accidents are that, that all like works really well for me to the point where like, I was very, very, um, empathetic toward and tender toward, um, everybody in the, in the same way that I had been in the other episodes of, uh, Hulot's journey, right. That we've been on. So that was all, um, a lot of fun to watch. I will say, I agree with Jason, um, that I found this movie distinctly less funny than either, uh, Moan Uncle or, um, Monsieur Hello's holiday. And I, I kind of just chalked that up to like, um, the, the conventionalities of the plot, I suppose. Um, there are some gags that didn't work for me at all in this, which is new for me. Um, I think that specifically one of the final gags with, um, the dog and Maria, um, it didn't work for me because it was like, it, it was using a trope from silent movies in a way that actually didn't work, in my opinion. So that'll be interesting to unpack. Um, I will say, though, uh, like Mon Uncle, I think that this is like a beautiful movie. I mean, like the, the shots that he both the composition and the color of these shots is just fucking gorgeous. Um, and especially to see a road movie look this good was really um heartening and, and really exciting. Like it, it was just a joy to watch in that way. So ultimately I don't think I liked it as much as the other two, but um, applying both um, Hulot's or Hulot, Tati's signature style to this uh, framework and sort of understanding and unpacking the ways that he's developing that, especially using um, Hulot as a character archetype, it made it a lot of fun to watch. Right. So it was super, I can really appreciate it on a lot of levels, even if it didn't hit me quite as favorably as the other two movies. And that's all I've got to say. So now I'm pulling into my um, gas station stop and who's that filling me up? Why it's Aaron. Hello. Whoa. You almost hit me there, buddy. Oh, slow down next time. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, thank you, Harry. Uh, great summary that I think I largely uh, agreed with. I, I kind of mentioned during uh, my, my kind of plot summary of the film um, that, that some critics have kind of uh, called this a bit of a, a minor work. Um, you know, I don't necessarily view that as a useful metric, uh, but I, I think that, that it's kind of true, right? I think compared to the, the highs that we've seen uh, specifically uh, in my uncle, uh, in, in my opinion, I think traffic is just unfortunately not as good. Um, that kind of feels weird to say, because I think uh, on this podcast, I've often been the one uh, to defend comedies that nobody else really liked, uh, thinking specifically of like Time Bandits, right? Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't like uh, Mansoor Hulot's Holiday as much as my uncle either, but there was this kind of laid back quality to that film that really worked, right? And, and it didn't work 
as much for me in the moment, but it did work in hindsight. Like in hindsight, I could kind of think back to that film and I could really see what it's going for. And it, it kind of, I, when I think about it, I have this very kind of warm uh, feeling uh, about the film. Um, th- this film doesn't feel the same to me, although maybe that will change over the, the course of the discussion we're having here. Uh, I think that ultimately the the problem might be the environments that Tati is choosing to take a look at. I know that we you know, uh, Jason and Harry and Cody, you've kind of praised the, the subject of like the, the auto industry and whatnot. Um, and I think that, that there's some interesting stuff there, but, but unfortunately a lot of these, uh, you know, environments and whatnot just, just aren't as interesting. Right. I think that a highway generally doesn't offer Tati the same breadth of opportunities that, uh, say weird modernist architecture does. Um, Neither does an auto garage, uh, an auto factory. Maybe there's moments here and there, right? Like a parking lot, uh, there, there's things here and there. But, you know, I, I don't feel that Tati needs to stick to the same visuals and gags, but I don't think that there's something here that's really great to fill in that gap. Um, th- there's moments, though. There's the nose picking montage. Uh, there's a very similar windshield wiper uh, scene at the end that, that really works. Um, but, but overall, I do think that this movie does start to work, uh, at about on the halfway point, which is kind of a big ask. I mean, we talked so much about the garden party scene from my uncle. Um, there's no comparable scene in this movie. Uh, but I think the scene that comes the closest is the custom scene that Jason mentioned earlier. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the kitchen gadget gadgets from my uncle that were the source of so much humor as all of these police officers go around and are kind of impressed at the, the fact that this car has a, you know, a, a stove in it or that they accidentally switch over over uh, the gas hose and the water hose and, and gas comes out of the water pipe and, and vice versa. I think that some of that is really good. Um, so overall, not as great as my uncle or even Monsu Rulo's holiday, but I think it also does go down pretty easy. And I'm, I guess I'm excited to see where we uh, go from here. Yeah. Um, Aaron, you said a lot of things I really like and really agree with. First of all, I think I have the same opinion of Monsieur uh, Hulot's Holiday that you do, where it's like, for whatever reason, when I watched that, I wasn't super compelled by it the way I wasn't super compelled by this, but I felt very, very warmly toward it after the fact, uh, which is not really the case, I don't think, with this one. Um, I, I'm really interested in unpacking why that is, and I think that you said some really good things about it, which are, we sort of take this for granted, right? But the last two movies that we saw... Um, um, both uh, Mon Uncle and Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, um, they were set piece movies, right? And like they were single location movies. And that location became, to use one of Cody's um, sort of terms, uh, its own character in such a large extent. Like when I think about Mon Uncle, I'm thinking about the house as much as I'm thinking about any of those characters. I'm thinking about the the vacation beach house as much as I'm thinking about any of the characters in Monsieur Hulot's Holiday. This is a road movie, right? So it's like fundamentally not about locations. It's about several locations. And I think that really does take something away because like you said, I think absolutely the best scene in this movie is the custom scene. I would even go so far as to say the other scenes are the best scenes are the scenes where this movie stops and is in a single location for an extended period of time. Um, with the one exception being that I don't like the third act of this movie very much. And that is a single location. So maybe that's the exception. Um, and then the, the only other thing I wanted to say, and, and maybe we can get into this a little bit, but I like, I'm not trying to be super political here, but I also just wonder if like, I don't know that that uh, like watching these working executives do their jobs is as sympathetic as, 
Mon Uncle or Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, right? Like, I just don't know if I'm that compelled by making sure that they're um, that they get to this auto show on time, right? Especially because it's like we saw we saw the workers at the beginning who actually made the vehicle, and then they're never seen again for the most part. And mm-hmm. like, I get it, but like, there is there is a class distinction here, and it's there's something kind of fascinating about that about the fact that like this is twenty odd years after. Um, Mon Uncle. And at this point, uh, Tati is like an absolute commodity, right? Even though he was nearly bankrupted by playtime, he's he's like a well-regarded person. So there's almost like a, like this is like his third hip hop album where like all of a sudden he's just singing about how it's hard to be famous. <laughs> and everybody's like, wait, wait a minute. Uh, because like, that's all he can relate to anymore. It's not quite that bad, right? But it is really interesting that like all of a sudden now that we're in the seventies, we get to see Hulot in this like in this position of authority um, and, and the people that he's around and that he associates with are on the higher level, right? Like he's not on the factory floor anymore, except when he's designing. And we end up following these executives who are trying to sell their product directly. And we leave behind the people who made it. So like, there is something to that. I think that like, I don't know. I just like all of these people were not as exciting or as fun to watch to me as they would have been if they had been, you know, um, it, closer to the actual work. Um, and I, I think that there's some interesting lampooning with that, with the PR woman. Um, but I think it's also interested in some other things. And maybe that explains some of the like distance that, that we have. I don't know. Um, uh, to, to your first, not to skip over the second point, but going back to your first point specifically around, uh, you know, you, you talked about uh, my uncle in holiday kind of being films that revolve around certain locations. Um, I, I think that that's, that's uh, a pretty, pretty good observation. Right. And that my uncle specifically, like you do absolutely think about, it's like the, the most boring, like literature one-on-one thing to say, but like that, that house is a character. Right. Um, and, and like the way that that house kind of changes and the way that the characters interact with that house is like, most of the best humor of that film. Um, I think similarly, uh, you know, uh, Monsieur Lowe's holiday, uh, even though it is, uh, you know, a, a film set in this one location, uh, for the most part, I think that that film, you know, the characters and like the different, uh, kind of odd people who go about their day while vacationing, that that's kind of the main draw of that film for me. And that, that, that is like very grounding in a weird way. This film doesn't have that, uh, with the exception of uh, the car, right? Like the car in this film does act very similarly to the house in My Uncle. And that is why the custom scene is so great, right? And it's not as good because it's not built up in the same way that that my my uncle was was building up that house. Uh, and this is something we talked about during the Monsieur Lowe's holiday uh, episode as well. But like my uncle builds all of those gags up until it like unleashes them one after another over the course of like twenty minutes in the middle of that film. This movie mm-hmm. doesn't do that, but like some of the gags with the car are really good, and that car as like as a character or as this kind of central force in this film is like the one area where I think this film really shines. Uh, The problem is that you then have to have all these other sequences that are, you know, uh, the car getting repaired or them driving the car. And there's like little nice things interspersed there, but, but it it doesn't, I don't think it holds up in the same manner, unfortunately. Yeah, I I think that's fair. And I, I really like where we've gotten, um, with this discussion of deny, I guess just throwing in my two cents about, you know, we've all, kind of uh gestured at the fact that you know maybe this movie's on a a different and or lesser or like weird feeling tier uh compared to the other one uh tati films we've seen and i I guess like 
as far as like a lot of the like the the visual dynamics or even just like if we want to call them set pieces as far as those being more like nomadic in nature and not tied to like a one location or one person there was something about that that really it not like it really worked for me but it was something i found myself being able to latch onto right away in a way, in a way that i looking back is kind of surprising i think that would have maybe rubbed me the wrong way but like it this movie is very textural like it's very texture driven in a way that we haven't really seen from uh, uh i guess the other two that we've talked about um that that opening credit sequence with the factory it's very like in your face it's uh, you can like there's uh, i get overlapping kind of sound design um there's a lot going on uh and very like or not very but like fewer individual like points of that environment are highlighted in a way that we might see in mononcle where like the bit moves from like you know this interaction with this piece of the environment like there's a lot of overlapping parts um it, you know, we still get this like the scenes pulling back where uh you know at the auto show especially we get a couple of those where we pull back and we see a lot of people moving at once and it's a different orchestration of movement that we get when we're like in a factory or on the highway that uh, the word i kept coming back to is soothing like it's soothing to me in a in an like a, a similar but different like we got there in a different way compared to like the soothing feeling i get watching hulo kind of bumble around an area or like watching a whole bunch of people around him kind of bum around uh the same area i I think the thing that doesn't really work for me about all this and i I think harry maybe got to it uh, a little more but like the the the, i i say tonal inconsistencies i'm not sure quite sure if that's what um what i mean but like the flow of bits going into i there's like a car crash sequence and then uh which i kind of liked because it, it was I don't know something about the visual eccentricities of like a, a car up on its two wheels, uh, rolling forward for an obscenely long time. And then a car spinning out like that hit me in like a, a really, like I was not expecting that, especially with what that movie had, pre- what the movie had presented so far. And so that like hit me in a, in a, in a nice, like off balance kind of way. But then there's like a car crash where an old guy hurts his leg. Cause he'd been drinking or something. Uh, and then the dead dog bit, Harry, that you mentioned felt weirdly uh, dis distasteful compared to what we expect from these movies uh or like tati's sensibilities and i I really was not kind of expecting that you know i i do agree that sort of car anatomy sequence where we're picking out like oh these are all the weird things about this car isn't uh like uh, i don't know uh isn't mechanization isn't this all goofy and and fun and (laughs) like sadly wild but like i the movie should have built up to that scene and built up and away from it. And I, I guess I didn't really feel that as much as I liked some of the parts and would have liked to have seen those, like, I don't know, work together a little bit more. I don't know. I think I've said enough, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, go ahead, Jason. I, I totally agree. Like, I can't tell you how excited I was getting for that opening scene where it's like, Oh shit, here we go. You know, he's about to do some like really funny shit. They've got like panes of glass standing and they've got drawers that are open to be steps and they've got the it guys like rolling the back. Right. It, 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 it was, it was like- literally, it was all set up and I was like, Oh man, you yeah. know, once Hulo finds his way into this room, it's all going to go down and then we're going to move on and it's going to be a road and it's going to be great. And then none of that happens. Literally none of that happens. Nothing pays off. It's like the only joke, like the only two jokes I can really remember from that scene are the guy using this, the drawers as a stepladder to go get whatever he needs from a shelf. And then the workers who are rolling each other back and forth to paint a thing instead of like moving with their legs. And those are like, barely jokes which gets me to my next to my like point which ties in all this i think is like functionally did anyone else feel like a lot of gags just weren't jokes 
Like they weren't 100% intended yeah. as, as like, Hey, look at this thing. And here's why it's funny. It looks, you know, um, normal. It looks like it's just a thing you recognize in your daily life, but we're going to turn it into this. Like a fountain is a fish that like becomes part of the, uh, like the character of the house. And, you know, um, the dog farting around the office precedes the, the, uh, head executive in the way that like Mona Uncle did. And a lot of that, and I'm tr- like, this is what I mean when I say that I was trying to like step back from my own criticisms of like, okay, if this weren't a Hulu movie, what would it be if this weren't like as explicitly a comedy as I know it's as it's trying to be and that its lineage would indicate, what would it be like? Would these bits be landing? And I don't think any of them honestly would. I'm not trying to be mean to it particularly, but like nothing, each, each one of those that came and went, I found myself divorced from the movie further and further. Cause I was just like, well, that didn't happen. That could have been a great setup. Didn't happen. That could have been a really like, I could imagine that this being really fun and it just never comes together. Did that feeling pervade anybody else's watch? It did. And this was a point I was going to make because it's really it's really interesting that you say that. It kind of works for me, right? Like, especially in that okay. first scene that you mentioned, I like, I even sort of like started to think that it might have been semi-intentional. And I'm not, I'm not trying to ascribe intentionality to them. I don't really care either way. But like, like there's that one scene where that that person is unspooling a hose and the hose goes right in front of a door. Uh, that somebody had just walked into. And I was like, oh, here we go. He's going to trip over that hose. And then he just comes out and he he walks right over the hose. Like, yeah. right. And I was like, wait, is this like, are they subverting my expectations? Like, is, is this supposed to be me? Now they know that I know what a Hulu movie is and they're, they're trying to fake me out that way. And I kind of dug that. And I also like, I totally agree with what you were saying about how, like, there are a lot of parts of this movie where there are no jokes at all it felt like watching a weird documentary that had actually happened. Right. Like yeah, there, yeah. there are parts where there are long sequences where everyone's just driving. And it's just like, is this just an actual documentary of these people trying to get to this auto show on time? And weirdly, I felt very compelled by that. And I think that it's, it's something to do with what Cody had said. And this, this ends up being a weakness as much as it is a strength, but there's something about the fact that this movie has a really central, obvious framing that really worked for me. Right. Like, a big problem I had with Mr. Hulot's, Monsieur Hulot's holiday at the beginning was like, I couldn't figure out what I was watching, right? It was like, wait, like, am I, is, is he going to show up? Is this going to be about his vacation? Uh, is this going to be about all of these people or just some of them? And even Mon Uncle, to a lesser extent, I felt that way. In this movie, it's like immediate, right? It's like, okay, we know exactly what they're doing. Like they have to finish this quickly so that they can get it to this auto show on time. And like, there's a very much like a um, Little Miss Sunshine or like a goofy movie uh, vibe to this movie where it's like, we're, we're headed somewhere and we know we need to get there. And we're going to, we're going to experience sort of a narrative arc on our way to that destination that like it centers the movie so well. And I think that, that like it made me feel compelled even though a lot of the jokes weren't jokes and it made me wonder if that was sort of almost intentional in the sense that like like you had said if this wasn't a uh tati movie what would it have been i think that this might be like a even more grounded version of a tati movie right where like something that startled us about um monsieur hulot's holiday and mon uncle are that they're not as big or as broad in their humor as we were expecting. They're, they're certainly not a Pink Panther or a Mr. Bean, right? And instead of Hulot himself being the object of um, 
humor, the world itself around him is the object of humor. That's still true in this movie, except that I think that the world is closer to the actual world as it exists in our world than it ever has been before, right? And I think there might be something important to that, uh, to the idea that like, this is still uh, Hulot's universe, right? This is this is a encapsulation of what every single um, work project in Mr. in Monsieur Hulot's universe looks like, right? It's always a clusterfuck. It's always a logistical nightmare. Um, everything's always breaking down. But that's just the world, right? Like there's some sense in which he's trying to communicate that, like, like. Hulot's sort of style, as I've represented it in these movies, is a lot closer to the style that you know than you think, right? And I almost wonder if if the groundedness of this movie is sort of part of the point of that in an interesting way. I don't know if it works for me all the time because, like you said, um, I wanted to laugh more than I did at this movie, I think. And I think that it undermines itself with some of the um, later sketches that become much more like obvious and telegraphed than any like that was the big uh dog problem i had right is that that is a skit that felt like a like a monty python or like a pink panther skit which there's nothing wrong with except that like that sort of telegraphing is not at all what i expected from this movie and it was like all of a sudden i'm watching like a broad actual comedy routine in a movie that had subverted that almost entirely with the exception of a few set pieces right and so it's it's interesting right like i don't know that that this movie it kind of tries to have its cake and eat it too in two different sort of competing ways in a way that um, that maybe doesn't quite work for me. But I think I can appreciate both of the things that it's doing in an interesting way, right? So it's, 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 uh, it's complicated, I guess. Yeah, I'm really thrilled that you characterize it that way, um, in part because there was something I wrote down um, about halfway through the movie, and I wasn't sure how much it lent credence to really anything, but... Uh, like we're, we're talking about how the character Hulo has, he's affecting his environment less than maybe we'd seen. Not that he has like a big presiding influence over like what happens in Monocle or Monsieur Hulot's holiday. It, it, it kind of light again, like very touch and go oh, like, oops, he accidentally knocked a painting this way or like touched a piece of architecture in this way. And, and, you know, hilarity ensues we feel even less of that in traffic and i wrote down like the car is literally driving itself like i couldn't help but feel like the events of this film would have happened in virtually the same way uh whether or not hulo was a part of them or not whether or not he worked at this place or had any like say in the designs whether or not he was the one who like got the gas like these there was sort of an inevitability like even watching the car anatomy i'm just calling it the car anatomy sequence but like when they're going through the vehicle and being like oh this does this and this and this even watching that and how great that is i like and i think that was like the point when it's just like it doesn't matter that hulo and um you know this public relations lady and all these people are here swap them in with you know eight marcells and like this will effectively function in in the same way they'll get stuck and you know they got to get to this auto show um but yeah like you kind of characterizing it harry as like a a double-edged sword or like it's good and also it's bad or like i don't know it depends on your particular sensibilities maybe but like i i definitely get where you're coming from i want to like it and i think in other situations i would unabashedly like the direction and and i still do again i i like that sort of piece of it i am very down with the parts that are not hulo leaning or that are hulo absent maybe but i don't know You, you you gain and you lose some things i think for sure i think that like 
it is this movie was uh like both of you just uh illustrated like a series of is this is this you know wanting to laugh at it and realizing that you're not going to laugh at that scene so maybe there's something you could laugh at at the next scene but then maybe realizing that it's misguided to judge every scene by that metric um which is where i you know, come from when I say that I was trying to like level my own and backpedal my own uh, criticism of the movie when I was thinking, is it funny or not? And I think one of the greatest illustrations of that is like everybody's fascination with the moon landing in this movie. Uh, we were talking before we started recording about, um, you know, when the most recent prior to this film's release, when the most recent moon landing would have been. And it was, I think we landed on it actually being Apollo 12 in 1969. Uh, but there are a couple of key scenes like that where people are pointedly and notedly watching the moon landing uh, and either are obsessed with or really overjoyed with it. And I wasn't exactly sure what to make of that. It is repeated. It is, I feel very intentional, but I wanted to know if the folks on the call have uh, any insight as to like why or what, how that resonated with the rest of the plot for you. Yeah. Um, I have a characteristically like thesis driven take on that, that may or may not work for you. But, um, to me, what Tati is doing with like all of the movies we've seen so far is so much about like reframing the way that we think about our sort of everyday existence and our navigation through um, our professions and through our systems and our patterns of behavior that I think that he is having some fun with reframing the idea of the moon landing where it's like we see this logistical nightmare play out, right? And this is trying to get a car from one uh, country to another for an auto show and everything that ensues um, and everything that gets in the way, right? Where like they almost burn the France down, right? Because like they're, everybody gets into a car accident, everybody, nobody knows what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. You, you think about that and you apply it and you think in, in Hulot's universe, which is to say increasingly our universe, what, what must have the moon landing been like? <laughs> like, like these, these are people who were, who were sniping uh, human beings up to the moon, which is further than anybody's ever gone to like hit this pinpoint target. How did they do that? And like, there's something unbelievably like aspirational, not only in the obvious sort of scientific sense, but also in the sense of like, how did human beings organize something like that? Given what human beings are (laughs) like, like given the fact that, that we have trouble, we all pick our nose in traffic and we all, um, like smash our cars into one another all of the time, just trying to get from point A to point B somehow, some way we still managed to do this thing. And like, I think that, that, that juxtaposition of the high achievements of mankind and the, the sort of like skewed, uh, sort of like winking, loving, um, satirical look at, at how humans are as depicted in Tati, it creates, at least it does for me, this like this great sense of loving and appreciation for, for just the idea of like the fundamental dysfunctionality of human beings and the way that we are all sort of like united in that, um, which again is kind of why the class stuff of this movie doesn't work for me. Um, one other thing I wanted to say just real quick, and we can go back to Jason's point, is Cody mentioned something earlier about how this movie is is taking you through multiple systems rather than just one um, system. And in the process, it unveils different forms of motion and different mechanisms of um, geog- our geometry, right? Like, like we see the, at the end, the people moving in the grid through the, through the cars, we see the highway and how that works. We see a factory, we see an auto floor show. Um, we even see uh, commuters on their way to and from work using the subways. We see a lot of different ones. And 
they all have differences, but they also all have commonalities and it's commonalities of dysfunctionality, right? Like they're, they're all these ridiculous things that shouldn't work and somehow still work because they're always on the verge of falling apart. Where like, if we just looked around and we're like, Hey, wait a minute, like, how do we get that? Like, how did that car stop? And I went and we didn't crash into each other and both die. Like there, there's something to revealing the miracle of the fact that any of us can do that. Um, that I think this movie is doing a really good job of demonstrating um, in a way that I really like. And I think that what Cody had said earlier about the way that it's depicting all of these different intersecting sort of systems that are operating interdependently and sort of like they're all on their own arcs, but they're all running into each other all the time. It just like, it presents this, this fucking like knot of humanity that um, you get, this sense that like it's a miracle that it's working the way that it does. And I think that there's something to that and the juxtaposition of the moon landing that really makes that sing for me where it's like on all levels, on all from the, from the heights uh, to something as mundane as this car show, it's always been like this. And isn't that something to think about? Isn't that wild? <laughs> oh, it is wild. And yeah, I, I think my take on that is basically the same as Harry's, the sort of, uh, you know, getting you to rethink about like day to day, um, you know, logistical trivialities within the context of the fucking miracle it is that we made it to the moon. I mean, Jesus. Um, so yeah, like, I don't know, getting you to laugh at that, getting you to be sort of in awe of that. Um, like that. And again, I, I almost wish that cropped up more. Like that was kind of a background. Like, I mean, people are watching the moon landing on, on the tele, on, television and just are just kind of like they're distracted by it like they're very occupied but they're not like oh by god we made it to the moon i don't know why they, they're from like texas all of a sudden but uh yeah and i think honestly now that i think about it uh like that sort of framing of it the like focus on um you know the the, the lampooning adventures of getting from point a to point b and the miracle it is that we got there at all the fact that we do get to the auto show and like they're too late like <laughs> all along it was all for naught because they were uh, they were late for it like they were oh, like a, a day or, or something late for it they thought they had more well, time yeah, um she put in her schedule that it was the ninth because she wrote um a six upside down right wasn't that the thing right yeah yep nope that sounds right and uh, like that all uh, we i i guess the the significant or the most significant um like detail you could point out and be like oh this is why hulo's in this movie is for the scene where he's walking around this sort of um this convention center where things are half torn down you get some like there's a lot of garbage but there are also some like you know proto or like test vehicles you know prototypes for you know like looking at looking ahead to the future like these are our new models there is like i like that was weirdly sweet to me um especially under the context of like this is hulo's last uh appearance in a or like this is his last movie and like seeing him kind of wander around not necessarily like hulo's kind of a blank slate and all this like he's he's not necessarily disturbed by the fact that they were late or you know he's not e- elated or, or sad or anything like that but he is like unequivocally perpetually curious there's that curiosity with him as he like maneuvers the space, sits in a car and gets flipped upside down, um, which is a nice, I guess, literal inversion. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I So that led to a, a, a nice moment for me. Honestly, that was maybe 
like my favorite scene in the movie other than uh shout outs to car anatomy but even even if it was only brief and the movie didn't really come across as like you know a, a sweet um sort of yarn in that way i that like 30 seconds really did something nice for me yeah and i think it's funny that it leads into a scene where um you know as as he's just wandering around his boss then uh you know the whole event is shot nothing is worked out the like it was all for naught the whole movie was was completely like useless and baseless um and then after that his boss fires him just out of i guess frustration uh with not being able to get the job done even though he's his lead designer and he says he specifically says like uh take a bus train plane or whatever not like you know, drive away or get out of here. He gives him some money like for bus fare and, uh, and then fires him. And as he's walking by, then they see that, uh, the few people who are still hanging around the auto show, like the few, uh, visitors actually are nuts for this car. They're asking for information. They're, they're, you know, checking it out. They're putting, uh, you know, pinching and poking around it. Uh, so that's like that moment of like, Oh, there's the punchline is that right after Hulot has been fired, his work is getting, you know, recognized and he's beloved again, uh, in that last moment. I think there's like, if we were getting really head ass about it, there's a whole through line in this movie, particularly. And knowing that I've, you know, I've only watched two Tati films before this, but like in a lot of jokes and throughout the movies that I've already seen, uh, there seems to be the, the, the through line of um, like, what is the point of blank? What is the point of technological advancement? Here's a joke about that. What is the point of homemaking? Here's a joke about that. Or, you know, vacationing and, you know, uh, you know, summer romance and stuff, just like little pokes and jabs here and there in a fun punching up kind of way. Uh, and in this one, it almost feels like, like he's asking like, what is the point of comedy <laughs> to, at a certain point? There are so many, like Harry was saying, is it aware that I know that it's comedy and that it's in that, like, this isn't going to be funny and that's what makes it funny. Is it like that self-aware? Is it that um, like pointed to the to the end of like we're we're making a larger statement about this kind of comedic film, and then perfectly, it's an exit point for Hulot from you know cultural consciousness. I don't I don't know, but it feels like that sometimes as I'm watching you know like like Cody saying that final scene where he he gets a sweet moment with just one you know one or two one off goofs. And then he's fired, and then one last goof, and then he walks away with you know potentially the girl of his dreams. I, it was it was charming. Uh, it, I don't know that it like fixed a lot of what the movie was doing that didn't work for me, but it was like it was it was a little soft, warm point in it. Yeah, I think that that totally works. I really like that reading, Jason, and I think that it works really well with also the arc that these characters and all of the characters in all of the uh, Hulu movies we've seen, they go on the same subtle arc, right? Where like the father in Mon Uncle learns to take himself less seriously and therefore can connect with his son. The vacationers in Monsieur's uh, Hulu's Holiday learn to take themselves less seriously and therefore actually start to have fun and look forward to their next vacation. In this movie, the PR woman takes that role, right? Where at the beginning of the movie, she's like hell on wheels where like she is so committed to her job and like in her background in PR that that she's like sort of running roughshod over everyone. She has this hilarious um, bright yellow car that she drives like a bat out of hell everywhere. There's this really funny scene where she gets ahead of the truck and then the cops pull over the truck and she turns around and she like drives backwards or um, drives back up this exit and like makes cars like break so that she can pull to like this screeching stop right in front of the car or the cops, which I thought was hilarious. But at the end of the movie, she and Hulot have this relationship where they, they walk off together and she's smiling and having fun and, and seems to have forgotten um, what a disaster everything was after she had spent her whole sort of um, 
the the arc of the film sort of like trying to make sure that everything went off okay, right? And so like there's a sense in all of these movies and very much in this one, I think, that like through this bird's eye view, this sort of like godlike view of the absurdity of logistics and humanity in motion in this way, we're supposed to take ourselves less seriously, right? We're supposed to sort of adopt the benevolent um, – ah, shucks, curiosity of somebody like Hulo and, and understand that that's actually a pretty wise way to approach the world is to take things less seriously, to understand that everything is sort of in a state of suspended chaos and that nothing is ever going to go right. And to sort of like laugh about that, right? Like there, there's a very easy um, listening sort of uh, vibe to these movies that's just supposed to be like, like relax a little bit and like take the time to look around and recognize that that everybody's doing this and everybody's going through this, right? And um, I think that that works really well with um, with the sort of overarching arc and narrative of Hulo as a character. And I think um, that final scene that Cody, you mentioned, it works really well for portraying that in a couple of different ways, right? Because it's like that curiosity um, in this weird liminal space where it's an auto show after the auto show is over. So everybody's sort of packing things up and there's, there's almost a melancholy to it. And Hulo is just moving through that and like trying to sort of understand his place in all of it. And at one point he gets in a car and it's a, it's a, beautiful car that he's checking out. Right. And then he, he presses something and then it turns around and we see that the car is half finished and that he's sitting inside a, a car that, that, that is cut in half. Right. And it's, it's the most obvious visual metaphor for like a peek behind the curtain ever. Right. And like doing that at the end of a movie that has been all about peeking behind the curtain in a, in a film arc that has been all about peeking behind the curtain is very pointed, I think, especially as a farewell to Hulo. It's sort of like, remember there's always a curtain, like, this is all performance. This is all logistics. It's all a nightmare. In the end, we're all these like chaotic nose pickers who are, who are trying to get from point A to point B and, and stepping over one another all the time because of our own stress and our own egos and our own anxieties. And like, wouldn't it be nice if, if we could remember that? And like, didn't you want this movie to remind you of that? And uh, won't you sort of like remember to be a little bit more like Hulo? And like, I think that that's a pretty great, um, theme, right? And I think that it, it really shines through here, even um, even if it sort of starts to fray a little bit here in the uh, in the 70s compared to um, Mon Uncle or Monsieur Hulot's Holiday. Yeah, knowing that it comes from Tati is such a, like, I think that's what clinches it for me. Um, and I'm only realizing that as we go. Uh, real talk, guys, um, like total honesty time, do you pick your nose in the car? I will... This is open floor. I I do. Um, I don't for the sole reason that I fear that a like a, a sprightly, um, bustling filmmaker is photograph uh, photographing me rather from afar, and like I'll make it in some big art house famous movie that's going to stand the test of time. Um, understandable. So understandable. I, I I I do not I do not blame those who do though. Um, go on, pick with your bad self. I, I will say there are only four of us on this call and we all got to answer. Um, so that's me and Cody in the bag, Aaron. I, I don't, I don't really like that question and I don't feel the need to, Aaron's a I yes. don't feel the need to justify that with, no, I did not say yes. Not asking I you to justify saying that I don't like, the, I just want on the record the question. I find it insulting, uh, offensive, and I, I don't feel the need to respond in any manner. And this is not a response itself. <laughs> Do you I'm just give me the Glomar? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm just all constantly. Yeah. 
I'm picking right now. Anytime I'm not on camera, anytime Guys, somebody's looking at me, I'm picking. That's why Harry always sounds like slightly nasally. He's just, right. There's just always a finger. Are up in there because I'm picking. Yeah. Oh. Hey, while we're, while we're, ABP, always be picking. While just we're, let me uh, grab another a booger bit. here. Oh, stop it. Stop. Why, 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 uh, why does every young, attractive uh, woman love uh, Hulo? What, it, what is the, I understand it's supposed to be it's like this symbolic thing about his carefree attitude, but it's like That's just right. every 23 like, year old smoke show loves Monsu Hulo, uh, 50, what, 55 year old bumbling. He was, you know, too in this movie. He's the director probably has something to do with it. I would say it's sort of yeah. a David Lynch yeah. and Quincy sort of, sort of deal. Oh yeah! Uh, shout out to the big man himself. Uh, Try love bingo cards, by the way. Um, scratch that space away. Yeah, I I don't know. Uh, what's not to love about you know uh, a six foot three gentleman who is uh, only preoccupied with the conventions of the world that we live in? You know, uh, I can't growl like a like or purr like a cat, but um, just imagine me doing that because that's, uh, get that's the energy. On the mic. I had uh, a uh... he's asleep. But yes, I have a weird relationship with that character. Did anybody else? I mean, I really liked her, but I wondered if if part of the joke was like this idea that you would hire a very attractive woman to be PR, and that that's sort of like a running gag is that everybody's very attracted to her. Oh, definitely. I don't know if I liked that very much. It felt very like weird, sexy comedy yeah. thing in a way that I didn't I think- really want to see in this. Well, you know, if, if it had been more explicitly like everybody was horn dogging out for her, and you know, there there's like the um What's his name? Berenson, uh, the oh, the guy with the the mustache the mechanic- uh, figure. Oh, well, th- I was going to say the. I'm thinking the, of a different guy. But okay, like there's if, if more of these people mustaches in this movie. By the way, sorry to interrupt you. Jason. Agreed, agreed. There's Jason, a guy who straight up looks Jason like Waluigi. Yeah, I was, was going to say literally Waluigi in that that one scene where he's, he's <laughs> yeah. in the fight. Yeah, yeah. Takes off his shirt and he looks like fucking Goku all of a sudden with a mustache for some reason. He, look, he looks um, like um he looks like fucking Adrian Brody playing Goku playing <laughs> Waluigi. <laughs> uh, I think if it had been oh, a little more like over the top, everybody was horny for her and cars were crashing because she was you know she's a leggy blonde or whatever, it would have been a little bit more stick out to me. I think what that character to me was more as like look, she's clearly American, right? Like, and she right. can't speak French very well, and she can't speak. Uh, you know, Belgian very well. She can't speak any of these dialects that she's trying to operate in very well. Um, and that is what makes her like a sticking point in the, and like not very approachable in the movie is the fact that she can't really communicate with people and that she's like, that's a really good she, point. And, and when she does, uh, you know, she's very brusque. She doesn't, maybe she, you know, isn't, I don't know how good she is at, at her job if she can't coordinate this. So maybe that's another implication that doesn't rub you the right way, but right. I don't, and I'm saying this as, you know, a straight white male. I don't know if this movie was as objectifying of her as it could have been. Oh, no, um, definitely there's, not. In fact, it, I really vi- like the idea of her as like an American caricature. Now that you yeah. said that, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I think the only like weird turn, and we've all, all mentioned it already, the dead dog scene was like supposed to be her humanizing moment. She's way more carefree and understanding and like friendly from that point on. And it just feels like a weird downbeat for her character, for her to be like, you know, uptight and demanding and you know brusque uh and maybe like somewhat incompetent yeah right? that, I, don't, I, I don't want that at all i mean in addition to it being you're you've got this pretty garish bit about a dog that looks like a mop being squished and the dog uh you know being stolen by a bunch of hippies in addition to that it's like 
we're going to give that moment, not just throw away gag weight. We're going to make it like the next step for this character and our introduction to the third act. It was a really weird, grim downbeat that was like, this is probably what I'm going to remember of the movie, frankly. <laughs> yeah. And it it is memorable, which kind of makes this next thing I'm about to say kind of moot. Um, but for those who maybe can and are able to reframe it, one thing I did th- um, note in the moment and I'm now thinking about in retrospect um, because again like the actual dead dog bit is the thing that stands out the most the thing that it, it kind of ramps up to like the whole like the si- situation unfolds um, and Hulo is trying to make um, trying to make her see that like uh, no your dog actually isn't dead like look I'm doing all this stuff to it it's like it's an inanimate inanimate object uh, it's like a vest or something you know the dog's fine and everything he does just makes her more hysterical and he's shoving it in her face being like look this is not your dog uh and marcel walks out of the shed and is like watching this all unfold and just kind of blankly reacts like "Mm, well now i've seen everything and kind of goes back about his business (laughs) that that got a chuckle from me um but like at the same time that (laughs) obviously we're all talking about the bit before that bit um which like i don't know hit with a, a dull thud um and like doesn't quite um write that wrong so to speak but i don't know for what it's worth it, it did lead to in my mind a, a decent gag i'll say so the thing about that gag though is hulo can just tell her it's a fucking coat because this is not a silent film like is is hulo yeah, his character doesn't say lines of dialogue though that's the other context yeah, that like, we like link in legend of zelda he's a silent protagonist it like it okay. that bothers me right it's like it's they're trying no. to do a silent film thing and it's like dude you could just say like it's a fucking coat lady like, Did, look, that, that is for every single gag in every single one of these films. I, I reject I that assertion so. 100%. Not true at all. I think that they, they avoid that almost entirely because I would have called it out if I had noticed. But, like, I, I think that this is the one time where that rings true. But also, like, I wanted to, I wanted to say real quick, you're right, that's nitpicking, it's fine. Um, I will say that, like, not only does this movie not objectify her, but it, it does do a pretty cool and subversive thing where, like, if you were going to put like a quote unquote hot PR lady in this movie, you would make her sort of like hottie and um, uppity, like not uppity, but, but sort of like um, uninterested in her job and sort of like entitled. Right. And she's not those things. Instead, she's like a fucking force of nature. Right. Where like, she reminded me of a Tilda Swinton as child services in Moonrise Kingdom, just child services where it's like, she could she could yes. just yeah, introduce herself at multiple times as like I'm public relations <laughs> or like I'm PR. This is my job, and I like that was very endearing to me that she was just like this this like fucking like force to be reckoned with. Um, and I think that there's something about that that is redemptive, even if by the end of the movie they they end up sort of like troublingly making her into this sort of like symbolic thing to be. Uh, punished or shown the error of her ways in a very light sense, which I didn't like. So an interesting character and a character I liked in a lot of ways. I think the movie is better for having her. Um, I just don't necessarily like that final gag or what they ended up trying to do with her. A fun fact that is not listed on the traffic Wikipedia page or in any articles that I read, but supposedly uh, she uh, she's still alive. Uh, Maria Kimberly played Maria in this film. Um, she is a an American uh, model and actress. Um, she was the girlfriend of a pil- Paris billionaire uh, named Alec Wildenstein, who supposedly was like an, a big art dealer uh, 
galleryist, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And supposedly, uh, due to the financial failure of playtime, uh, Alec helped fund this film in return yeah, for Kimberly right. being cast in the lead role. Now there is no citation. It does say citation needed. Uh, I don't know why that hasn't been removed. If it's not true, uh, that is what Wikipedia says. I guess you I know don't what? know. But. I'm fine with that. She does a good job in yeah, this movie. Yeah, of course. She she does. Money. Like, let's go. Let's build that there's, billionaire. That's fine. <laughs> there's like a very comedic thing whenever stuff is going wrong and you just see that little like orange car just start to like, you know what I mean? Just start like going over yeah. the side of the road. It's it's a good bit. Yes, she she does she does quite a good job. She has a place in the movie. Uh, we have just hit the one hour mark on our recording. Is there anything else we wanted to squeeze out? Any other final thoughts? I've gone through all my notes, so uh, the floor is open. Cool. I think good. Yeah, I think we are excellent. Good job, everybody. And we're going to ring in our final segment of the show uh, with the help of my friend Harry. Yes, it's going you. to be called. It is called <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. Wow. Uh, thank you, as always, gentlemen, for that first-rate introduction. For any uh, diehard fans of the Noties out there, by now you uh, you may have picked up on certain patterns that I tend to go by when crafting these segments. Uh, for example, if we end up doing a series centered around a certain filmmaker, at some point there's almost certainly going to be a week in which we answer some questions about that person. And that week happens to be this week. So without further ado, welcome to Tati Trivia. Um, yeah, that's right. We'll be uh, we'll be running through some Jacques Tati tidbits. What I'll do is present each bit one at a time after each statement. Ah, I needed to take a breath there. We can keep that in. I will ask you all in reverse alphabetical by first name order to respond. You'll get a point for every correct answer, and the person with the most points at the end wins. As always, Trivia Mafia rules apply here, so use your nudes, not your googs. Uh, with that, we can jump in. Uh, for our first question here... <clears throat> We're going to ease into Tati trivia by invoking the Rashomon rule, which is that no film needs to be longer than Rashomon, a perfect film released in 1950 and directed by Akira Kurosawa. Rashomon comes in at 88 minutes. So uh, I ask you all, uh, you three fine fellas, what percentage of works directed by Jacques Tati abide by the Rashomon rule? Jason? I'm going to vote um, 50%. He only had, what, six movies? Uh, we'll, uh, we'll find out. Okay, I was going to ask, can I ask a clarifying question about what counts as works uh, in this? No? No, that's a good question. Uh, Harry, your guess? Wait a minute. I also want to know the the answer to Aaron's question. Uh, I think everybody has enough information to answer. Have some faith, guys. No, I don't don't think so. I'm going to say 20%. Harry says 20%. And Aaron? Uh, What did Jason guess again? 50. Uh, 21%. Aaron says 21%. I don't go last that often. I need to do this. Of the uh, of the eight credits, uh, the eight works that list Tati as director using Letterboxd as our yardstick, four of them come in at or under 88 minutes, which I believe gets us somewhere around 50%. Somewhere around um, there. So I think, yeah, yeah, I think it's right around there. Jason gets the point there. Uh, previous episode, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday is listed at 87 minutes. Beyond that, uh, Jour de Fete is a crisp 80 minutes, and Tati also has a few short films under his belt, uh, and those are School for Postman, which is 16 minutes long, and Forza Bastia. Forza Bastia, just clean read of that, at 26 minutes. Again, those are works directed by Jacques Tati, as the question indicated. Uh, 
if you, uh, uh, all butthurtness aside, if you have a subscription to the Criterion channel, every film that Tati has ever directed, uh, that is feature length and short films, um, they, uh, they're available there and they will probably always be available there. I come to think of it. There's also a Criterion box set available. And for the month of May 2021, all listed disc prices on their website are discounted 30%. What I'm saying is uh, this amazing plug was totally free. So Criterion, we know you're listening. Feel free to throw some love our way. And also please release a Blu-ray of Stray Dog. Please release a Blu-ray <laughs> of Stray Dog. Thank you, Cody, for the plug. The yes, idea of course. Short films are subject to the Rashomon rule is absurd. That I, yeah, I gotta agree with Harry on I don't like agreeing with Harry on this point, but yeah. The Rashomon rule is it's a feature-length film doesn't need to be longer than 88 minutes. If, if, it, if it was, a short film can't be longer than 88 minutes, otherwise it would be a feature film, Cody! He did stipulate the works of, not the feature films of. Yeah, but the Rashomon rule, I think, is specific to feature feature films. films. I am am with Harry on this one, but I'm willing to say Jason gets the point. I think we should move on in the interest of peace. I don't care if you're willing. Uh, the the definition that I read whenever I bring up the Rashomon rule, which is that no film needs to be longer than Rashomon, a perfect film released in 1950 and directed by Akira Kurosawa, uh, it only mentions film. Films can be short or feature length. Um, so with that out of the way, we'll go ahead and move on to number two. Uh, in 1996, Entertainment Weekly, everybody's favorite publication, uh, made a list of the 50 greatest directors of all time. Tati was included on that list. What was his rank, Jason? Number 46. Number 46 says Jason. Harry? I'm pretty sure that that's right. I'm pretty sure that I remember reading that. So I'm going to say 45. 47. 45 says Harry. And Aaron says 47. Uh, Folks, Jacques Tati came in at number 46 on Entertainment Weekly's Greatest Directors List circa 1996. Jason, two for two uh, on perfectly 100% correct answers. Uh, Some other notable folks uh, kind of immediately surrounding Tati on that list. We had Spike Lee come in at number 48. uh, And then just above Tati. Yeah, yeah, 96, I I guess. Spike Um, Lee might be a bad... It's that... Yeah. Look, I'll yeah, I'm boy. thinking he's but probably better. Probably like right after that. Uh, Jean, uh, I was about to say Jonathan. I'll just say Jonathan Demi uh, was just above Tati at number 45. Uh, and Friends of the Pod, Ernst Lubitsch and Akira Kurosawa came in at numbers 16 and 6, respectively. Uh, the top spot uh, went to Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, Esquire. Jesus so, Kurosawa. Kur- Kur- never mind. I, I won't. I won't be that guy. Thank you for the question. Uh, you could. I, I am happy to continue my lead. He's a better director than Hitchcock is, much less all of the other people that you mentioned. Let's go. Let's fight. Get at me. I'm on Twitter. Wow. I can't wait for you to plug that handle again at the end of the episode. Uh, We've still got some questions to go. It's still very much anybody's game. Uh, Jason's on the board with two. Harry and Aaron um, are are hanging out uh, in the background, but maybe not for much longer. We'll see. Uh, And I should say also with that, we've talked about Entertainment Weekly more than we'll ever need to on this podcast. So we're going to pivot to everybody's uh, actual favorite topic, sports. Uh, It's perhaps no surprise, given the physicality of his characters, that Jacques Tati comes from an athletic background. Which of the following sports, I'm going to give you three of them, which of the following sports did Tati not excel in during his life? Rugby, auto racing, tennis. Jason, which of those uh, does not belong? Damn. Um, I'm going to say auto racing. I feel like that's too easy an answer, but 
I don't have any better one. I feel like I feel that, like he couldn't have done the, that those really stupid moves in uh, Holiday without being like a professional. <laughs> hey, uh, to each their own logic. Uh, Harry, what's your guess? And speaking of my logic, I'm going to go with tennis just because that seems like the obvious one that he would have done. So I'm, I'm thinking that that's kind of sneaky. And also because he's fucking big. He's a big dude. And I bet, he, I bet he's great at rugby. He looks like he'd be great at rugby. Ain't that a fact. Aaron? Uh, I am, I'm also going to go with tennis, I think, uh, which is a weird just calculating the points here. But yeah, I'm going to go with tennis. Um, it's, uh, well, the correct answer here is the sun shines, uh, shines down on team Daphnis. It's B auto racing, uh, reportedly Tati was a skilled tennis player and later he became a semi-professional rugby player. So uh, yeah, I mean, that definitely checks out. I mean, look at that guy. Harry, uh, we got to talk about uh, what's happened to us. It still uh, is anybody's uh, game. Uh, it's not anybody's uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a game for sure. A big old asterisk next to this victory anyway. I'm fine. It's fine. Uh, I, you know, uh, the. The state of Harry Mackin does not recognize the authority of this uh, ruling by this criminal the enterprise. Duke of the Duchy of Daphnis. All right. Well, um, were Jason yeah. and Cody in cahoots before this round of quiz trivia? I, I, th- I'm I would not love to be in cahoots with fact. anybody. I'm just, I'm just bringing up that question, <laughs> something I think we should all be thinking about. Nobody's ever asked me to be in cahoots before. I would love to. I would love to, to be in part. cahoots. Send me these answers beforehand. That I would sounds... love that. What are we doing? Well, while, while, uh, while various gentlemen are perhaps checking their asterisks at the door, uh, we're going to move along here. We got two more questions uh, to get through here somehow, some way. Um, um, but number four here throughout uh, this Tati series, we both um, gestured at the sort of legacy that Tati's films have left behind, as well as considered it how well they translate to present day audiences. Uh, we've talked about Wikipedia not necessarily being gospel. Uh, we'll buckle up. We've got an IMDb question here. This isn't by any means a perfect metric. Um, it's hardly even a metric. Uh, but for most movie pages on its website, IMDb has a section called Connections, uh, like many areas of IMDb. Uh, and like I said, as much as I like to pretend it's certified gospel, it's just crowdsourced. But it's where users can label things like, uh, other works that are referenced within that movie, as well as other works, kind of the inverse, other works that reference that particular movie. Of the four films included in this Trilon Tati series, citing the connections sections of IMDb, which film do y'all think is the most referenced Tati film? As a reminder, the four films in consideration are Mon Oncle, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, Trafic, and Playtime, which again, we have not yet covered. Uh, So starting with Jason, which one of those is your pick? I'm going to vote Playtime because I haven't seen it. Jason's going to vote playtime. Uh, Harry, what are you going to vote for? Did you raise your hand, Jason? You knew you were up first. That's how we've been doing this thing. You don't got to raise your hand, you teacher's pet. I'm not I'm not mad about any of this. Um, I'm also going to choose playtime. Uh, Harry's going to choose playtime. What's Aaron going to choose? Uh, I will go with, uh, you know, classic rule, uh, <clears throat> last point wins. I'm uh, going to go with holiday. Uh, Monsieur loves holiday. Aaron is going to go with Monsieur Hulot's Holiday. Um, so what I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to go down the line in order, in order of uh, gradually increasing number of references. Uh, so bringing up the rear, we have uh, Traffic. Uh, that's listed as being referenced in four other works. Uh, better luck next time. Uh, Playtime, then, is referenced in 15 other works. Uh, and then we, next we've got Mon Oncle, uh, which is referenced in 20 other works. Uh, apparently, there are a lot of shout-outs to the Red Pipe. Congratulations, uh, Aaron, for winning this round. Uh, grant, glancing at those. Uh, and Monsieur Louis Holiday comes in steaming hot with uh, 27 other works referenced. I did call last point uh, wins. You noticed I used the word I did call last point wins. You did? I did call uh, last point and, uh, wins. 
I heard it. I think we judges. Yeah, I, that checks out. So Aaron's on the board. He he's uh, he got the point for number four here. We got one more one more question for our final question. Oh, <laughs> that was <clears throat> second last what? point. Uh, similar to what we've done in previous games, I'm going to read off three quotes allegedly uttered by Jacques Tati. Two of these utterances will be for real, again, allegedly, and one will be not for real. Uh, your task is to pick out the not for real one. So I'll read off the three quotes and leave it to each of you to pick out the imposter afterward. Uh, so starting with the first quote, I don't believe in inspiration that arrives like a bolt from the blue if it doesn't also arise from your body and your immediate lived experience. So that was the first quote. Second quote, I find that the people who speak the worst English want to talk more than the others. And then the final quote here, I'm always, in each shot, each moment, trying to defend the simple man who tries to fix something with his hands. So Jason, which one of those is the imposter? Hmm. I will say B about English. B. Harry? Uh, I guess I'm going to try A because lived experience sounds like a more contemporary term than I feel like Tati would have known, but maybe I'm not giving him enough credit. Uh, We'll see soon enough. And Aaron? I was also thinking that, however, this is a, I assume it's a translation from French and maybe so it's just like a a newer translation. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go. Well, I'm going to go C, I guess. Aaron is going to go with C. Uh, The imposter is A. The quote itself is real. But instead of being uttered by Jacques Tati, it was actually allegedly spoken by fellow French filmmaker Agnes Varda. So shout out. That's more like a Varda. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, so brilliant. Um, I, I guess uh, also in the words of Mr. Tati, I want the film to start when you leave the auditorium, which is to say for our purposes, the real podcast won't begin until you stop listening to us. Uh, but for now, thank you all for playing Tati trivia. Uh, Jason came out on top here with three points. Uh, Harry and Aaron, uh, tied for second. Last time we we did did say that last point wins, I believe. Uh, second last point wins. I believe uh, the second so that is not what you said, and that's I believe I said the second. To, I would like to believe that what we said and what we agreed to was just last Thank you very much for listening to Try Love. Thank you very much for another uh, exciting and uh, and and unimpeachable round of Cody's noties uh, with Tati trivia. Thank you so much, Cody. Cannot wait to see how this plays out for playtime. Uh, this has been our episode about Trafic, a 1971 film by Jacques Tati, playing as part of a Jacques Tati series at the Trilon. You can get tickets to this film and to the forthcoming Jacques Tati film, I believe Playtime is playing after that, uh, at the Trilon at trilon.org. Um, you can also find other cool ways to support them in, uh, as we maybe come out of the pandemic. Um, things are, uh, of course the Trilon is, is remaining, um, excuse me, careful about uh, mask mask mandates. You are still required to wear a mask inside. You may not remove your mask to drink things, eat things, etc. Just be careful if you should go and uh, know the restrictions before you go. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. Our podcast is called Try Love Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. You can find the Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I've been Cody Narvison. Uh, this series continues to be uh, a great joy. 
to watch and talk through. Uh, there's a certain uh, intentionality to uh, Tati's films, uh, kind of in the same way that there's a certain intentionality to what uh, gets communicated in the Nodi's segments. Uh, and I guess in either case, you know, uh, if audiences uh, happen to, or rather, you'd hope audiences rather don't misinterpret what is being communicated by uh, by either auteur. Um, so leaving that as it is, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Well, Mac and Nation, we did it. And I said your faith would be rewarded, and lo, it has been. But I am a humble champion, so I'm not going to belabor the point too much. Just uh, wanted to let you all know that that I was thinking of you, and, and this victory belongs to you as much as it belongs to me. And thank you all so much. Um, I've been Harry Mackin. Um, you can call me the champion. You can call me the, the king of Cody's noties if you uh, are so inclined. Uh, you can just call me Harry. That's really what I prefer. Um you know, I, I don't like to, I don't like to, to let the fame change me. You know what I mean? I gotta, I gotta stay connected to my roots. Um, but you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. I accept congratulations in the form of payment on PayPal. So thank you. Uh, my name is Aaron. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. Although once again, I am taking a oh, Twitter God. break. I am off the platform. If you at me, if you attempt to DM me, get in touch with me, probably won't respond because I don't even look at it these days at all. It, uh, so, you know, uh, maybe write me a letter or something. Uh, but yeah. Or something. Um, thanks again for listening, everybody. Uh, for those of you feeling uh, that you need to, to give concerned feelings uh, t- over to Harry, don't bother. He's just out of gas. Yeah.